Are you looking for some practical tools for cultivating health in your local church? Check out the Nine Marks e-journal, our bi-monthly publication which features articles and book reviews on crucial topics. To subscribe to the Nine Marks e-journal, visit www.ninemarks.org forward slash e-journal. Hi, I'm Ryan Townsend, Executive Director of Nine Marks. Our vision is simple, churches that reflect the character of God. In light of that, Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches. To that end, we pray that this Nine Marks audio message will benefit both you and your local church. Listen, learn, and join the conversation. This is Jonathan Lehman chiming in from Charlotte, North Carolina, where Nine Marks is midway through the first five years conference for pastors and planners in their first five years of ministry. And one of the speakers for the conference is Bobby Jamison. Bobby has written a book called Going Public, Why Baptism is Required for Church Membership, which is the topic of this interview. Bobby, thank you so much for, at the end of this long day, taking a few moments to uh, discuss this book with me. Thanks, brother. Happy to. This is not the first book you've written. You've also written... Sound Doctrine, How a Church Grows in the Love and Holiness of God. And Unity. Whatever you said. (laughs) How Churches Grow in the Love, Holiness, and Unity of God. There we go. And you're in the process of writing two short little books on baptism and the Lord's Supper called... Understanding Baptism and Understanding the Lord's Supper. Yeah, that's right. And I've, I've read the first one and I'm excited to read the second once you write it. Um, and once upon a time, Bobby worked with me as an editor for Nine Marks, but then you abandoned me. Greener pastures, man. For, for Cambridge University to begin a PhD in New Testament <laughs> under the supervision of Simon Gathercole. How far into it are you? Just beginning. Six months in, I've done a survey of literature, and working on the first kind of main chapter. Because you're trying to write these other books on baptism and Lord's Supper in the meantime. Well, no, not really. Thankfully, I'm able to give myself full time to the PhD, and which means that these books are getting squeezed into kind of small margins. So you're doing it all together. Yeah. Amazing. Bobby's married to Kristen, and they have two daughters, Rose and Lucy. And a boy on the way. And a boy on the way, Praise due in God. May, Lord willing. That's right. Well, brother, I want to talk about the argument of your book. Uh, you say in the introduction that the book has a, quote, polemical purpose. Does this mean that your book is argumentative and mean? Polemical? Polemical. Is it a mean book? I hope it's not a mean book. It is argumentative, if I can use that word in a little bit of a neutral sense, in that I'm trying to argue a case. I'm trying to make a point that is disputed and debated. Uh, and I'm trying to do so in a way to hopefully persuade at least some people to change their minds and change their practices in the church. And um, yeah, so it's polemical in the sense that I'm making a case. It's entering It's entering the fray of an argument. Um, I hope it's not mean. I really tried to be gracious to those uh, with whom I'm dialoguing. I have great respect and affection uh, for people who disagree with me on this issue. Um, and I think well, it's... Well, you, you, you say, for instance, that John Piper and John Bunyan are a couple of those conversation partners. Is that because you don't like them? Well, Pilgrim's Progress had a massive spiritual impact on me, and John Piper has been and is a great influence on my whole spiritual life and approach to scripture. And so I very much am approaching these guys as brothers and, and really mentors with whom I'm disagreeing about a matter that is not as important and as central as the things that we agree about. Um, but I think is nevertheless important. And, and those brothers Bunyan a long time ago in, in an influential way and Piper more recently, but still in an influential way have written um, against what I would take to be a scriptural position on the issue. Now the overall argument of your book is that baptism must precede church membership, like like the subtitle of your book says. Mm-hmm. Baptism must precede church membership. And that's because, and, and to read your thesis statement, that's because baptism and the Lord's Supper are effective signs of church membership. They create the social 
ecclesial reality to which they point. And so, so, so baptism should precede church membership because the ordinances are creating a church. They are constituting the membership. Is that, is that basically what you're arguing? Yeah, that's it. To boil it down a little bit, you could say that the ordinances are community-creating. They're not purely individual, um, and they're not purely symbolic. What, they what, actually, do you mean, what do you mean when you say they're effective signs? Is that what... Yeah, yeah, community creating. They actually mark off the people who belong to Christ, and in so doing, they actually, in a sense, unite those people to each other. They don't create salvation. No, no. But they create something. That's right, and that something they create is actually the local church as something more than a bunch of individual Christians who happen to be in the plural. So no, I don't believe the ordinances create salvation, but I believe what they're creating is this bond between Christians coming together as a church. Now I want to come back to this in a minute and kind of unpack all that, because again, it's the heart. But let's just note that the argument which said these these brothers like Piper and Bunyan and and many other brothers with Mm -hmm. whom we, brothers and sisters with whom we uh, were one in the gospel, uh, would contend with us on this issue, contend with you on this issue, uh, is the response basically, how can you not let people into your church who you would affirm are Christians? Because isn't that what it comes down to? Yeah, that's right. So, So who is it that you're not letting into the church who you would say is a Christian? Well, that is, that is the main argument, and it's a strong argument, and I appreciate the heart behind that argument. Um, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a compelling argument in, in one sense, in the sense that it, the, the heart behind it is to say, let's not make the door into the church any narrower than the door into God's kingdom. And so it has a certain plausibility. It, it seems right. And, and in a sense, I almost entirely agree with it. But... Uh, where I disagree is that baptism is actually part of how a church is meant to recognize who is a Christian. So it's how, how a church is meant to affirm those people who are Christians, and consequently, like giving someone a team jersey, when you give someone a team jersey to identify them as part of the team, after that, that jersey is part of how you recognize right. who's on the team. And so I would absolutely, if you, if you frame the statement like this, if you said um, that churches should admit all professing Christians into membership, those who credibly profess faith in Christ, I would agree, so long as we understand that baptism is the form in which and means by which one professes faith in Christ according to Scripture. So I'm the team coach. I'm trying to figure out who to put out on the floor to play for my squad. Guy comes along and says, hey, I'll play for your team, but I won't put on the jersey. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. If you're going to be on the team, you got to wear the jersey. <clears throat> yeah, that's you... how we know who you are. That's how they know who you are. Yeah. And what we're talking about here is, we're talking about paedo-baptists, right? As Baptists, am I right in saying we're, 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 we haven't actually said that phrase yet? We're talking about people who have been baptized as infants. Well, it's a good question. Well, that's a subset of who this who this conversation applies to. So, in one sense, I want to be clear, of course, that... that people need to be baptized um, to enter the church. And most people would agree with that in a broad sense. But where the real rub comes for evangelical Christians, uh, since there are Bible-believing Christians who believe that only believers should be baptized, and there are Bible-believing Christians who believe that infants should be baptized too, you have people who have the same convictions all the way down the line on just about everything, and who have tons in common as Christians and work together in all sorts of ways, but some of whom think baptism is legitimately applied to infants, and some of whom don't. And so the real rub in this conversation is what should those churches that practice believers' baptism do with people who were baptized as infants, and I'm going to put baptized in scare quotes, um, and who want to join the church. So that is the issue. And where the rub comes, again, is that you, for instance, would not let a Jonathan Edwards or a a good friend like Kevin DeYoung do the church if they've not been baptized as believers but have only been baptized as infants. That's right. But this book isn't an argument against infant baptism, per se. No, not directly. I, it's, it's an argument against what you call open membership. That's right. That's right. So, I'm largely taking as given that Scripture teaches believers baptism. I get into this a little bit here and there, but I'm not uh, making an explicit argument that churches should only baptize believers, as opposed to baptizing infants. Right. I'm taking for granted that some churches do baptize infants and others don't, and for those who don't, who are convinced that Scripture teaches only believers should be baptized, I'm trying to 
help people think about how we should assess infant baptism and what we should do about it in relation to membership. And so there's a sense in which an honest Presbyterian or honest Pado Baptist in general is going to agree with this book. Some will, some won't. Historically. Uh, uh, yeah, and even historically, some will, some won't. Uh, from my, wouldn't, from every, my, wouldn't every Pado Baptist say you need to be baptized before you enter the church? Oh, certainly in that sense, yes. That's what I mean. Uh, sorry, yeah, I was, I was kind of thinking ahead in a different direction. Um, yes, absolutely. So in that sense, everyone, really, in the entire history of the Christian church affirms that people need to be baptized in order to join the church. There's The only substantial exception to that is credo-baptists who would then allow pedo baptists into membership, and there's a couple sort of teeny kind of niggling exceptions besides that. But in the main, over 2,000 years of church history, yeah, everyone says you have to be baptized. So my grandpa was a godly, godly man, and he was a quote-unquote colonel in the Salvation Army. Hmm. And uh, the Salvation Army doesn't practice baptism. They thought the Great Commission only applied to the apostles. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know if my grandpa himself was baptized or not, but I know the Salvation Army doesn't practice. And so if you're a typical Salvation Army church member Mm -hmm. and you're trying to join a Presbyterian church or an Episcopalian church, presumably they would say you have to be baptized. Yeah. And wouldn't let you join. Yeah. So again, it's not a unique Baptist position that we're, we're, we're defending here, but it certainly it is one that we're more cult- Somebody from a Salvation Army church is, is fairly rare. Where That's it's, right. it's more common today for a Pado Baptist to want to join a Baptist church, and so this puts Baptists in many ways in an awkward position. That's right. Um, Let's see if we can unpack this thesis for a second, and then we'll think about whether or not this is genuinely important or just an obscure hobby horse for polity specialists. Mm-hmm. Okay. So again, the thesis is baptism must precede membership because baptism and the Lord's Supper create the church. They constitute the membership. And that's not an immediately intuitive idea to get your, your head around. I, I guess the place you want to begin is to understand that the argument... To, to understand this argument is a right understanding of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And you call baptism an initiating oath sign or, or a vow of the New Covenant and the Lord's Supper a renewing oath sign of the New Covenant. Can, can you explain what you mean by this? An initiating oath sign or a renewing oath sign? Yeah, throughout Scripture, God relates to his people through a series of covenants covenant, not being exhaustive here, but covenant with Abraham, with the nation of Israel, given at Sinai, covenant with David, and again, not all of those covenants without exception, but most of them come with some sort of a sign, Um, and especially, for instance, the Abrahamic covenant is identified by the covenant sign of circumcision, and so Abraham and his offspring are, are marked off as God's people through that covenant sign of circumcision. And they're not identical, but what I want to say is that baptism is analogous to circumcision in that it is a sign, as it were, attached or annexed to the new covenant. So baptism comes into being along with the new covenant. Baptism pictures the realities of the new covenant. Uh, Jesus commands and institutes baptism after inaugurating the new covenant. So I think there is a close relationship there um, even though maybe that language isn't used explicitly of in scriptures, you know, there's no proof text for saying baptism is the initiating oath sign of the new covenant. But I think thinking holistically about how Jesus inaugurates the new covenant, I think that's clearly the the role baptism is playing. And so to call it an oath sign, you say okay, that's a sign. Yeah, oath sign. Sure, that's right. So sign, oath sign. Um, in scripture, the uh, signs that um, that are attached to a covenant, and the sign that can mark someone off as belonging to a covenant, can sometimes um, function as a kind of non-verbal vow. So again, circumcision, the cutting off of the foreskin, is essentially an act of consecration to the Lord. Um, It has several dimensions, but one of those is that it threatens judgment for those who are unfaithful to the covenant. And so there's a sense in which someone being circumcised, there is a kind of wordless vow being performed on them. And and so you so you take take for example um, the exchange of rings in a wedding. You are you are pronouncing a vow verbally. There's also the exchange of rings that is a sign attached to the vow. Wordless and, vow. 
And but there's a sense in which you could just say if everyone knew what the exchange of rings meant uh-huh. without pronouncing words out loud, you could say that the the giving of the rings themselves are a wordless vow. You could call it an oath sign. Right. So what I'm saying in in is that baptism is not just a profession of faith. Um, it's not just somebody saying they believe in Jesus. It's also committing to Jesus according to the terms of God's new covenant. So it's actually pledging yourself to Jesus by, by God's grace, according to his enabling power given in the new covenant, but that it's actually essentially a, a vow, a, an, an oath of allegiance. Now, are you getting this from texts? Help me understand how you're getting this argument exegetically, biblically. <clears throat> Yeah, so one of the places that I think points most clearly in this direction is in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. Let me just turn there. Sorry. Be there momentarily. Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Verses 18 are following. Jesus begins by... Saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I think your first clue that there's a covenantal element here is this idea of being baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So throughout Scripture, God talks about putting his name on his people as a way of being identified with them through his covenants. So God, by calling out a covenant people for himself, associates himself, his name, his reputation with that people, and there's a sense in which they bear his name. And to be baptized into that name is to come into that same kind of identification. So again, even though the word covenant isn't used, um, I think this is precisely a covenantal reality of being identified with the triune God. And furthermore, this is in the context of being made disciples, uh, with what comes right after this, is teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So clearly, in addition to the, the blessings and benefits of salvation, in addition to God's enabling work in our lives, to enter into this relationship is also to enter into obligation, to commit oneself to the, to the lordship of the triune God and to obeying his, his will as revealed in Christ. So in that sense, this, this commitment, these commands are in such a close context. You can't separate it from this new life of obedience. And so, well, what is it to make this commitment? What is it to enter into this relationship? It's to sign up for this new covenant way of life. So that's why I'm calling it, calling it an oath sign that it's also a self-obligating ordinance. Fundamentally, it is celebrating faith in Christ and what Christ has done for you. Nevertheless, baptism, as it were, signs you up for the Christian life. Well, another place I've, I've thought about this showing up, this, this idea of a vow or an oath sign showing up is, is taking Matthew 28 and going back to Matthew 18. And there, there's that language of where two or three are gathered in my name and asking the question, why two or three? And looking back to verse 16, and that Situation of church discipline, well, verse 15, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone, if he listens, you gain your brother, verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, and what is Jesus invoking there? He's invoking Deuteronomy 19, and the idea that in a criminal trial of some sort, two or three witnesses are necessary to establish formal public testimony, it was the nature of the law, Establish testimony through two or three witnesses. Now we're down to verse 20. Is he talking about the second stage of church discipline as such, wherever the second stage of church discipline happens, I show up, there I am? No, I don't think so. If you follow the logic through verses 17, 18, and 19, you see what he's talking about is where you have two or three witnesses testifying to the name of Jesus. There Jesus' presence and authority is. In other words, Jesus is grabbing onto this legal tradition Mm. within Jewish law of what was necessary to make kind of a public testimony to his name. And he takes two or three witnesses. These two or three witnesses together are testifying to me. And there's, there's something like a vow going on when these two or three witnesses show up to say, we're with Jesus, he's with us. Jesus says, there I am, and it's, it's these people who are going to bind and loose in the kingdom. So the very constitution of the church seems to be in this, this moment of vow. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that 
close to what you're saying? Well, in a way, I've been talking about it from the believer's side. What is the believer doing in baptism? And you just came at it from the church's side, which I think is appropriate, because baptism isn't something you do to yourself, it's something someone does to you. And ultimately, I think baptism is authorized by, and in a sense performed by, representatively, performed by the church. And so I do think there is this um, formal, solemn commitment element. So in the sense that you're coming at it from the church's side saying uh, the church is kind of rendering a verdict. Right. And I'm kind of coming at it from the individual side right. and saying the individual is entering into this commitment. There's a sense in which it is a solemnization of commitment yeah. that requires both the church and the believer. Well, that's something I like about your book, brother, is people often talk about baptism only from the individual side. It's a profession of faith. But you say it comes from both angles. Angles, Both the individual speaks and the church speaks. Uh, can you unpack that a little bit further? How does the church speak? How does the individual speak? Yeah, well, let's just stick with Matthew 28 for a minute. To say that you're baptizing someone into the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit is to say that you're identifying that person with the triune God. And right. so the church and identifying an individual with the triune God is, as it were, ratifying, setting their seal to, affirming that person's profession of faith in Christ. So the church is looking at an individual, they're considering their confession, and they're, as it were, making a declaration that, yeah, to the best of our knowledge, to the best of our ability to discern, this person really is a member of God's kingdom. So in that sense, the church is speaking. And again, the, the church isn't necessarily saying this out loud in a certain form of words, but I'm, I'm suggesting that the act itself testifies to this. Yeah. Now, our, our friend Jeremy Young has to use the example of how a... Uh, he, he has these non-Christian friends, he was telling the story earlier today, who grew up in a Zoroastrian... Zoroastrian, yeah. Zoroastrian household. Uh, as well as other friends who grew up in a Buddhist household, and, and the parents of these friends would say to him, hey, look, if, if you want to attend that church, that's fine. If you want to hang out with Jeremy, the pastor, that's fine. But don't you get baptized. Mm -hmm. What is it that those Zoroastrian and Buddhist parents understood that Christians don't seem to understand? Looking at it from the standpoint of... Someone who is embedded in, a, in any culture, uh, who is not a Christian, looks at a Christian and sees, looks at someone becoming a Christian, the process of becoming a Christian, and inevitably sees a repudiation in a fundamental way of some of the values that animate and define that culture. Right. The gospel contradicts at its root all fallen human culture. All cultures manifest fallenness in different ways. But for someone who's not a Christian, looking at the process of becoming a Christian, it, it really is a kind of leaving us to go join these people over there who worship this guy who was crucified, who they say is God, and they say rose from the dead, and now they have to have this whole new way of life. And I think in a way, it's almost... Uh, there's other sort of sociological things you could point to, but if you think about what it looks like, you know, if you're just if you're a if you're a Muslim parent and your child converts, that is absolutely a repudiation of Islam, and in that context, to some degree, a repudiation of your family. And I think why they can see it so clearly that baptism is this decisive turning point. Maybe that's just precisely part of Jesus' reason for giving the church baptism in the first place, that there's this visible dividing line, this visible act, this very kind of public, obvious, overt thing, that even if someone doesn't witness the baptism itself, they know that this act defines somebody as a Christian. This act is quite literally, <laughs> you know, uh, crossing the Rubicon, so to, you know, passing through waters, coming out on the other side. A, a different in a different place relative to who you used to belong to. So we're saved by faith alone. Absolutely, amen. Not, not by baptism, amen. We're not converted by baptism, right? But it's through baptism you're saying that we cross the Rubicon. We 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 commit and show and demonstrate. I'm with them. I'm no longer with you. Yeah, a, a shorthand I found helpful in the book that I think does tie together quite a lot of what the Bible teaches about baptism is simply to say that baptism is where faith goes public. It's where faith shows itself 
for everybody to see. That's the title of your book, Going Public. Going Public, that's right. And that's one of the reasons why I, I called it that. Ba- going Public, precisely because this is how Christians out themselves as Christians. And that makes a statement to non-believing friends and family, and that makes a statement to the church. So again, that Zoroastrian and Buddhist parent understand, okay, when you, when you son, daughter, when you get baptized, that, that's like signing the check. That's like putting your name to it. I'm good for the money. I'm there. I'm one of them. And one can understand why they, from that perspective, would say, yeah, this is the big deal. This is the decisive moment. Yeah, it's something publicly visible, publicly accessible. Um, and and I think that it's, that's one of the reasons why the New Testament talks about baptism in a way that so closely identifies it with our conversion. And I think, and I think in fact, even uses baptism as a shorthand for conversion. Because it's something you can look back on and say, this is where faith came to expression. I, I believe theologically that faith is what drives you to baptism. You have faith before you come to baptism, but it should be a, a real immediate movement toward baptism from a new believer. So looking back at it at a distance, when you're sort of thinking about your conversion, your baptism would be a very prominent element of that. Right. Well, I think this is hard for us to grasp because what's missing from our understanding of Christianity, particularly as Protestants, is, is the public nature of our faith. And the ordinances aren't just these like, hey, look, this is me and Jesus, I'm this little thing I'm doing to kind of get some extra grace. It's about that faith going public and and owning the public nature of, of the faith and, and being a Christian in the sense Jesus has intended us to be Christian publicly. So, right? mm-hmm. I think there's a sense in which the ordinances make the church a public body. There's a sense in which, of course, our, our public testifying to the truth, the way we live in public, I'm, I'm not in any way wanting to diminish those things, but the ordinances, in a very specific and concrete way, mark off certain people yeah. as belonging to this body, and so, as, as Oliver O'Donovan puts it, gives the church institutional form and order. And so it makes the church something you can look at and identify and see. And even as a, a non-Christian person who might know very little about Christianity, if you see all these people who have gone through this particular rite that identifies you with Jesus, and all these people who celebrate this particular meal, well, you can see at a glance who those people are and what their lives are about. Well, you use the illustration in your book. You say it's, it's how we, correct me if I get this wrong, it's the difference between pointing to a bunch of Christians and saying, hey, there's a bunch of Christians, and pointing to a bunch of Christians and saying, they're a church. Yeah, that's right. In other words... Um, ordinances give the church its churchness. Yeah, the ordinances give, give a church its churchness. It, you, you don't just have to point at these many things out there and say Christians, but there's actually one thing you can point to, that in everyone passing through this ordinance, there, it's drawing a line between the church and the world. Everyone on this side belongs to the world, isn't with Christ. Everyone, everyone on this side has identified with them with Christ. Because it draws a line between the church and the world, it also draws a line around the church. In other words, you can look at that body of people and, and see them as a group. Right. So we're, so we're getting now, I think, to the connection between church membership and, and discipline. And, and to the pastor who I read who said, uh, I, it's because I care about church membership that I, I, I can't require baptism. Uh, and, and you say, you're missing the point. You're, you're turning membership into something unbiblical because in, in the Bible, bi- membership and baptism are tied together. So, again, let's, let's try to understand, or help us understand this connection, Bobby. If I, if I have an understanding of baptism and the Lord's Supper is this oath sign or vow in which the church speaks and the individual Christian speaks, how do we then get to church membership? What is the connection between baptism and membership? Mm-hmm. Well, I'd want to take this in at least two steps. And the first step, we can look at a brief proof text, Acts 2.41, the response to Peter's Pentecost sermon. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So you have an identifiable body of believers in Jerusalem. Luke gives us the number of the believers. It was 120 earlier in Acts. Um, You have those receiving the gospel. They're baptized. They're added to the church. And Luke even names how many of them were added to the church. And I think the context makes it clear that the way these people were added to the church was through the act of baptism. There's longer conversations we could have about the hermeneutics of interpreting Acts and and applying it to 
today and how we think about what's normative. But I think this is fairly clearly setting a pattern and a paradigm that baptism is the way by which you pass out of the Christ-denying crowd and into the Christ-confessing church. So the first thing I would want to say is baptism is how you come into this public, defined, identifiable body called the church. Okay. So Baptism is how you come in. Baptism is how you come in. Fine. And second thing? Second thing is that... Um, just as I would argue that baptism is the initiating oath sign of the New Covenant, so I would argue that the Lord's Supper, as you mentioned, is the renewing oath sign of the New Covenant. Front door, family dinner. Front door, family meal. And here, Scripture explicitly uh, identifies the Lord's Supper with the New Covenant. Jesus, in the, in the Last Supper narrative, says, This cup is the New Covenant in my blood. So he's clearly setting up the Lord's Supper as an ordinance of the New Covenant, and I think what you have is this ongoing, Paul says, as, you know, Jesus says in the words of institution, as often as you eat, eat and drink, you do this in remembrance of me. And so it's clearly an ongoing practice, whereas baptism is clearly a one-time practice. And I think in both ordinances, you have the gospel dramatically enacted and, and depicted, and you have people participating in it, and you have a sense of committing so in, in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, Paul sees participating in the Lord's Supper as entailing responsibility for the church. If, if you despise the have-nots in the church and rub their poverty in their face and you're having a party and getting drunk while they're coming in late and not having any food, Paul treats that as an utter overthrow of the Lord's Supper. So there's this sense of the partaking of the meal itself is obligating you with responsibility to the church. And so... Again, if baptism is how you come in, front door of the church, and the Lord's Supper is the family meal, well, I would say right there, you have church membership. You have entering this identifiable body, and you have celebrating fellowship with Christ and enacting fellowship with one another. And I'll just point to 1 Corinthians ten seventeen, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. I think Paul is saying something more here than, than just that the Lord's Supper symbolizes our unity. I think he's saying in some ways that the unity of the church is grounded in the unity of the Lord's Supper, which I think is ultimately rooted in how the church's unity is rooted in our union with Christ, which makes us one with another. And in the Lord's Supper, we, in some sense, participate in that and experience and enact that unity. Um, So the Lord's Supper is actually, as it were, kind of shining a light on the church, causing it to kind of flash into view as one body. So again, to your point, how do we get from baptism to church membership? I think where you have baptism as the way by which you enter the church and the Lord's Supper as this church unifying celebration, well, that's the relationship right there that we call church membership. Church membership is a a sort of second-order theological term in a way. I mean, it's in 1 Corinthians 12, maybe not in precisely the same way we say church membership. It's, It's an extension of a biblical word. But right there you have that relationship, people being committed to each other through Christ, having responsibility for each other, being distinct from and identifiable to the world. Well, you, you write, church membership names the relation which the ordinances create. So it's not just a coming in, it's, it's, it's when you say it's a second order implication, what, what you're, if I'm understanding correctly, what you're saying is the ordinances actually create that relationship that we call membership. What's primary is the ordinances, what's the implication is, is membership. Yeah, that's right. So I'm seeing the ordinances as creating this unifying bond between Christians. Right. And through this wordless vow. That's right, through this wordless vow. It's it's very much like a vow that constitutes marriage. Of course, church membership is not identical to marriage, but marriage is a relationship created, constituted by a vow. And I think that there's a sense in which you, well, you can understand that. It's creating obligations. It's creating this reciprocal uh, commitment that has a very particular shape. You're right. We can't remove baptism from membership because without baptism, membership doesn't exist. That would be like speaking of a marriage with no vows. Marriage is a covenant relation constituted by vows. Membership is a covenant relation constituted by the oath signs of the ordinances. So, so just thinking about my, you know, my own marriage vows. I, I Jonathan, mm-hmm. Shannon, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold. And in that vow, I'm. That's one of the elements. That's right. It's, it's that's one right. of the elements in constituting the marriage. And, and you're saying through baptism and the Lord's Supper, we are actually constituting this relationship between us as believers here on planet Earth. Yeah. 
we're made, we're made members of the universal church by Christ's death and resurrection and inclusion of us in the new, uh, new covenant uh, and through faith and repentance. But we become an actual local church and members of that local church through this vow, this wordless vow of baptism and membership. Yeah, so let me try to address the central uh, kind of counter-argument um, as a way of illustrating this. You know, the claim that we shouldn't um, make the door into the local church any narrower than the door into the universal church, uh, which is basically how Piper puts it. Um, what I would want to say is that the ordinances themselves are actually that hinge between the universal church and the local church. They're yeah. actually what bring that local church into being yeah. and make individuals a part of that local church. So so if you're, if you're just kind of assuming, okay, well, well, here's the universal church and here's the local church and we should make them identical, well, actually, I think that's missing the step that's actually giving the local church its distinct being as a church. Again, these ordinances are, are community-creating. They're marking off people as belonging to Jesus. And there's a sense in which they're more explicit and prominent in Scripture than a, a sort of conception of church membership or kind of abstract discussion of church membership. I think one of the ways we can get off on the wrong foot in this conversation is that we take for granted a certain churchly practice of, of church membership where you have names on a roll and you have a certain process of getting in and you have a kind of tradition of it. And we can take it for granted that that thing is a kind of stable given, that this thing we call church membership which we can do various things to. Maybe we could remove baptism. Maybe we could have different requirements. Um, that that thing just sort of self-evidently corresponds to a scriptural reality. It just kind of exists. Church membership. Well, of course there's church membership. We all know what church membership is. But I think that part of the problem is that, in, in a way, that kind of concept of church membership... Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is the very problem in the beginning is that it's been divorced from the ordinances. That it, it hasn't been thought through as an implication of the ordinances. Because it's again... the ordinances creating it. That's right. Because it's the ordinances that are actually creating it. So I have a pastor friend who excitedly shared with me about baptizing a man who had been attending his church for a while and finally became a Christian. And yay, celebrate his baptism. Praise God. Baptized, that's awesome. And then he added, almost in passing to me, that at some point he was also hoping to bring that man into membership with kind of further discipling. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate the mindset. I'm, I'm, sure that, I'm sure that the sort of divorce of those two things is unintentional, but I think that that's, in a way, kind of missing the point. The baptism should be the act by which and time at which that person is coming into the fellowship of the church. And in a way, that helps both baptism and church membership to have their proper importance and emphasis in the life of the church. I don't think either are served by severing the two. Because at that point, he's turned I'm sorry, he's turned membership into something unbiblical. In a sense. I would say so. Because I don't think you have this kind of second stage or more elaborate proceeding. I think it's I think it's fine and contextually helpful to have a certain process you set up for how people come into the church, but the fact that that it has kind of more of a pragmatic process element to it shouldn't uh, kind of blind us to the fact that baptism is really the act by which someone's entering the church. So baptism always confers church membership. It sometimes confers church membership. <clears throat> I mean, come on, Ethiopian eunuch. Yeah, well, let me let me address another uh, just sort of objection first, or clarification first, and that is that, of course, baptism is a one-time act. So you get baptized in Chicago, you move to a church in Detroit, you, as it were, bring your baptism with you. You, do, you don't need to get rebaptized in another city. It's something you do once. Um, so that little clarification out of the way. Um, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, he's riding in his chariot, presumably returning home. Uh, this is the early days of the spread of the gospel. He comes to believe the gospel. He says... Look, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Philip baptizes him, and the Ethiopian eunuch, praise God, goes on his way rejoicing. So a lot of people would look at that and say, well, he's not being baptized into church membership. Uh, he's just being baptized. There's no thought of church membership. It's not mentioned in the text. There's no church to where he's going. And I guess what I'd want to say is, well, that's precisely the point. There's no church where he's going. And so, of course, if we're in a circumstance where we have a local church up and running, there's a church a, a young believer can have access to, we're precisely not 
in the situation that the Ethiopian eunuch is in. The Ethiopian eunuch is on the very frontier of gospel expansion. And the way I put it in the book is that uh, the gospel always outpaces the church by a factor of at least one to two converts. In other words, the the gospel comes through. It's like this shockwave expanding. Here's someone coming to faith. There's no church yet, but guess what? The gospel is going to keep expanding, and as soon as there are those two or three believers who can together call on the name of Christ, there you're going to have a church. So it's almost like, not that the Ethiopian eunuch doesn't have a church or isn't baptized into the church, but that he, as it were, carries the seeds of the church with him. And hopefully he won't be the only Christian for long. Hopefully he's going to spread the word and that there will be the birth of a church. And we know, we know that a church uh, grew up in Ethiopia very early on in, in church history. Well, what, what struck me about this book is that it supposedly has a narrow focus answering why baptism must precede membership. But it, it's, it's way more than that. It's a theology of baptism. It is a theology of the Lord's Supper. It is a theology of the local church. Um, you write, this book is an exercise in rebuilding among the ruins of contemporary evangelical and even Baptist ecclesiology. It's, it's like you have to do all this other stuff just to answer this one precise question. That's right, and part of that is because I, I respect and appreciate the force of the argument that, that so many people find persuasive today, that you, you, on what grounds can you possibly exclude a Christian? And not just a Christian, but a Christian who shares all the rest of your theology, and a Christian who's so fruitful, and a Christian who can build up your church so much. So I feel the force of that objection. And while I draw on and benefited from lots of historic treatments uh, of this issue, and some of them in kind of nutshell, for, or seed form, I should say, have answers to this question, it was really in trying to answer that question that threw me back um, to try to re-examine the ordinances. Because to, to me, this was the kind of intuition I had going into the book, uh, and I hope this is something that my scriptural study confirmed and, and deepened in what I hope and pray <laughs> is an accurate way. Um, and that is that the ordinances are not simply in, for individuals. And I think in a way, one way or another... Because the, the individual speaks and the church speaks. The individual speaks and the church speaks. It's not just a matter of individual obedience, but it is identifying someone as belonging to Jesus, which has an intrinsically corporate function, has an All intrinsically community-forming function. If yeah. you if you are... If you, um, you know, uh, obtain citizenship in the United States, well, there's a sense in which you're individual status has changed and that has personal ramifications and you had to go through a very personal and individual process but that's fundamentally a corporate reality you belong to a new body politic and you're identifiable by all interested parties um, as a u.s citizen and i think baptism is analogous to that in very many ways so i guess what lead what led me to try to sort of dig deep into baptism and the lord's supper and kind of rethink membership in light of the ordinances is is this hunch, which I do think is there in Scripture, and I try to I try to unpack at length that the ordinances aren't just for individuals, but they are inextricably bound to a community forming role. Well, brother, I've thought and written about church membership quite a bit, and it really helped me think more carefully about precisely those connections, and it has your book uh, enriched my understanding of church membership uh, tremendously. Thanks, brother. Uh, and, and in many ways, it's uh, I've referred to it uh, as sort of a primitive ecclesiology because you really ask us to go back and just think from the Bible, what is it that constitutes the church or the church's membership? And so you have this thought experiment in chapter 7 where you're asking how does the church come into existence, the local church come into existence, and what role do the ordinances, the two ordinances play? And you you ask us to travel back to the first century and to imagine, say, that I'm a member of the church in Pisidian Antioch, and there's lots of Christians there, but then a famine hits, so I move up to Ancyra, where there is no church, and I'm the only believer in the whole city, and I share the gospel with both Jews and Gentiles, and several are ready to become Christians, and I'm, I'm not an apostle, but I know they need to be baptized. There's no church. What do I do now? How does that church form? I think how that church forms is by the person who brought the gospel administering the sign of the gospel to those who have responded to the gospel. Um, so for those with kind of polity and historical ecclesiology ears attuned, that's a very congregationalist uh-huh. uh, account of the formation of a church. 
Um, and that's just how I how I read. So, so there I am the in New Antira, I yep. share the gospel with you. Yep. You're like, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. I take you to the river. Yep. I baptize you. Yeah. We are church then. Well, I'm. I, I would want to say that there's there's certainly some type of mutual commitment and understanding involved. So does does a missionary with his very first convert form a church with just the two of them? I mean, maybe I think that's technically possible. If there's a group of people who are being converted, I mean, I think there's a little bit of pragmatic flex here. But what I would say is, if you have people who come to embrace the gospel and who are baptized, uh, even, frankly, if you have, I suppose, even just one Christian resident in an area and one new Christian. I've affirmed you through baptism. Yes, Bobby's a believer. Yeah, what happens next is the process of teaching everything Jesus commanded, uh-huh. and w- which includes the formation of a church with all of its corporate life, including celebrating the Lord's Supper together. So I don't think there's a kind of infinite regress of authorization where someone else or higher or outside um, has to be authorizing baptism. I think it's fundamentally tied to the gospel. And again, thinking on the missionary frontier context here, and I do think there's a difference on that on the kind of front line of gospel expansion versus where you have churches that are formed. But if you ask, if you're if you're asking the question, you, you've got the sort of dark map up on the wall, and it, the darkness meaning there's no gospel there, there's no Christians there. What happens then? Okay, the gospel comes in, and you have individual Christians. And what I want to say is, very quickly, um, those Christians need to and should form themselves into a church, and the way they do that is precisely through coming together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So if you think about, I guess, I guess the, the, what I hope the value in this approach is, if you think about how do you get from no church to church, the ordinances are the hinge. We're local, often, local church. Excuse me, local church. That's right. The ordinances are the hinge. So we're often thinking about, you know, well, we have all these believers in the city, and some are baptized, and some aren't, and some are baptized as infants. We're used to thinking about this, there's a sort of disorganized Christianity, in a way, because we travel around, and some Christians are in churches, and some aren't, and we're, we're used to, frankly, a bit of a disorganized mess. But I think we need to begin. We don't, we don't end here, of course. I'm not trying to have a kind of naively primitive approach or something, but I think to think about the church theologically, you need to be able to articulate what it is that brings local church into being from no church. And what I'm suggesting is it's precisely the preaching of the gospel ratified in the ordinances. Brother, early on in the book, you talk about the fact that cultural, or that open membership Mm. just feels right. Mm -hmm. Culturally, it just feels right. Why is it that it just feels right? Yeah, there's a handful of reasons that I talk about, they're all sort of related. So one would be our culture of tolerance, and you can maybe put tolerance in quotation marks, just to say that tolerance is a kind of prized supreme virtue, even though tolerance itself uh, is a parasitic concept. It, It has to rely on something greater to define the nature and scope of tolerance. But nevertheless, when tolerance is such a massive force in our culture to say, oh, we're going to have a church that certain other Christians can't be a part of, and certain other Christians with whom we are great theological allies can't be a part of, that just feels instinctively wrong. Um, another one would be, I think, I think some of the traditional denominations, particularly Baptists, but the Baptists weren't unique in this, over a hundred years ago and more, um, were, in a sense, wrongly anathematizing each other over polity distinctives. So there's a sense in which uh, some, of the ba- some of the denominations would treat leaving the denomination as equivalent to leaving the church altogether. And I want to make it clear, that is not the argument I'm making in this book. I, I gladly recognize Pado-Baptist churches as true churches. They have the gospel, they practice the ordinances, although I regard their practice of the ordinances as mistaken in some key ways. But I don't think that means they're not a church. But So we've gone from this position of maybe being too tight, you could say, to these days. Um, there's just a, a, an atmosphere where to kind of insist on any denominational distinctives or divisions just seems kind of counterproductive. Well, it's part of our evangelical DNA in some ways, our neo-evangelical DNA. Yeah, so especially the evangelicalism emerging after the uh, Second World War, and even having roots in kind of the earlier evangelical awakenings, is very much about cooperation around evangelical essentials. Well, George Whitfield gets over to America, or even in Britain, and his fellow Anglicans won't let him preach in their churches, whereas the Presbyterians, and the Baptists, especially the Baptists, will let him. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And in, and in post-war evangelicalism, you have this huge, you know, cooperative investment in parachurch organizations. And parachurch organizations, by definition, have to sideline uh, precisely those things that make churches distinct from each other. 
Um, but what? But there's a sense in which, you know, uh, in in neglecting those things, we've kind of just let them fall by the wayside to a, to a large degree when they're actually prominent in Scripture. And we have to wrestle with them. Um, another one is is advancing secularism. There's a sense in which if if cultural favor toward Christianity is uh, rapidly ebbing away, it just seems like, what on earth are we doing fighting with each other about this? Um, And my response would be, well, (laughs) we still need to attend to the basic building blocks of the church. We still need to attend to the basic matters of discipleship to Jesus. So yeah, those are some of the kind of factors in the cultural mix that I think make the position I'm arguing seem a priori implausible. Brother, are you making theological arguments in this book or exegetical arguments? Well, the way the chapters progress, kind of three through seven are the load-bearing chapters. I start off looking at baptism as where faith goes public, and I hope in that chapter I'm sticking very close to some of the main concerns right on the surface of the text in a lot of New Testament passages on baptism. And, And by sort of tying it together as baptism is where faith goes public, that's actually kind of the seed of the whole book. Because if baptism is where faith goes public... It's where you out yourself as a Christian. It's how you're identified as a Christian. It's how you're recognized as a Christian. The kind of corporate, and you could even say epistemological, role that baptism has in a carefully qualified sense, it's actually right there in this idea that baptism is how someone shows up uh, publicly as a Christian. And in that sense, I want to say that central theme, I hope and trust, is rooted in some in, in the best exegesis I can give it. As the book progresses, I do use some different theological lenses um, that I trust are rooted in deep biblical themes that I try to justify with reference, again, to specific texts. But as, as the book progresses, it does move from being more directly concerned with what's kind of right there on the surface of the text to trying to draw more synthetic, systematic, dogmatic conclusions. And what I would say is, anyone who's going to um, approach this question thinking the Bible uh, teaches us what to think. Whether that's for or against, or in a way, not enough evidence to give a verdict, even if you're not prejudging whether you think it's definitive. If you're going to try to get an answer, there simply aren't proof texts one way or the other. There's just, th- this question just doesn't arise directly in Scripture. And so, uh, on, I, I would say I'm making both exegetical and theological arguments and, and it's just like how we address issues like the Trinity, or articulating the doctrine of Scripture, or the Atonement, or lots of other things where we have to have a kind of attentive theological logic to putting the big picture together. Um, in a way that I'm not trying to claim special privilege or status or anything. This is just how we do theology, um, and I'm trying to do it with ecclesiology. Um, as I was planning out this, what I, the questions I'd ask you for this, I, I was asking myself, should I begin with a defense of why this is an important conversation uh, to have? Uh-huh. Or do I <laughs> have the conversation? There, there are several brothers here in the room with us who are listening to this, and they're, they're all falling asleep at this point. It's late. I, I, I think I think it's crazy, though, because I think... That <laughs> yeah, I'm just How nerd. could they not be I interested? Know, this is fascinating! <laughs> What's wrong with these guys? I, I this stuff's that. great! I think this stuff is fascinating. But... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding either. Um, and listener, you should be fascinated too. Amen. Um, but wh- why is this? I don't think it's just fascinating. I actually think it's critical and important. It's not. It's not the gospel. Yeah. But it's important in preserving the gospel. Mm-hmm. Why is this an important conversation? Why do young pastors mm-hmm. need to get their heads around this like stuff uh, that we've been talking about for the last? <laughs> 52 minutes and 33 seconds. Thank you, dear listeners, for sticking with us this time. Whoever still is. (laughs) Why is this important, Bobby? One reason, I think, is that, and this is coming from a conversation with a friend of mine who's pastoring in a place that's very multicultural and does not have a Christian heritage, pastoring in a country that that's true of. Um, I think he's sensing that when you're trying to build a church in that kind of place, to think clearly about the ordinances, and about polity too, but the ordinances are kind of visible markers of that, it, it, it helps give shape and definition to the church in a way that if you, if you build this into your church from the ground floor, it helps people see what it means to follow Jesus. So one of the things I was talking about in my message today at the conference is that if you 
unite baptism and church membership, you say from the beginning of your discipleship of a new believer that to be a Christian is to have a new family, the family of God. And to be a Christian is to live under Jesus' authority. And I'm arguing that connecting baptism to church membership, baptizing people into the church, conveys those things. The, the church practice attests to those things. It shapes believers. It creates a sort of institutional groove into which your discipleship to Jesus flows. And if you divorce them and detach them, you, however much you don't mean to, you can help perpetuate a kind of autonomous consumer Christianity where well, I've been baptized and now I just get to go live as a Christian however I want. I don't think pastors mean to do that. I'm sure some pastors... You know, that would be the last thing on their minds. But if we just allow baptism and church membership to kind of drift apart, we're saying, yeah, here's the kind of initiating ordinance into Christianity, but it's not really tied to the local church. So that was, so that would be one thing. I guess what I would say is that Jesus, I think, has stuck these things together, and they're meant to point out the shape of the Christian life and, and, and kind of set a trajectory for the Christian life. So Jesus says, Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. He wants us to be openly testifying to who he is. Baptism is where that initially happens. And it kind of sets you on the trajectory of living openly as a Christian. Right. Um, and, and just one more, one more way this is important, I think, for pastors. Um, is that it, it, what you do with the ordinances has tremendous knock-on effects in the entire life of your church. Um, everything from uh, everything from what it means to belong to your church, what type of commitment is involved, to, frankly, whether your teaching on baptism has teeth. So one of the things I would say to someone who wants to embrace paedobaptists and bring them into membership, and again, you, I think you, there's... You'd say to a Baptist to embrace... That's right. Say to a Baptist who wants to embrace paedobaptist members is that practice is going to functionally deny your stated confession and conviction and teaching on baptism. And I'm going to argue there's a sense in which that action is going to speak louder than your words. You can't insist that Jesus commands believers to be baptized and then say, you haven't been baptized as a believer, we're going to let you into, into our church. Uh, by the way, Jesus says you have to be, but we're not going to make you as a church. And, and I'm not saying that anyone should, when I say make you, all that I mean is we're not going to make it a requirement. Of course, I think someone should only be baptized if their conviction, if their conscience informed by scripture tells them to. But yeah, I think it has, it has real knock-on effects. Um, Related to how you disciple people, related to your teaching, your convictions on baptism. Well, you, you write this in your book on, on this question. Those who want to extend membership to Pado baptists intend to widen the fence surrounding the church, that's what they mean to do. Mm-hmm. But what they're actually doing is dismantling the fence. Jesus established baptism as a line between the church and the world. And a church that includes unbaptized people is not rightly enlarging the household of God, but taking apart its walls. Without baptism, there's, there is no local church. Baptism promotes and protects the gospel by requiring those who believe the gospel to publicly confess the gospel. When a church removes baptism from the requirements for membership, it privatizes Christian profession. It undermines the authority of Christ's commands by allowing Christians to disobey one with impunity. It allows the individual conscience to trump the authority of the local church. In principle, however unintentionally, Allowing unbaptized persons to join the church weakens that church's witness to the gospel. For the sake of freedom, the church compromises the true freedom found in keeping all of Christ's commands. I found I, I went through that paragraph and found seven reasons. It, it dismantles the fence, taking apart the walls. It it, it, it it kind of destroys the local church. It says there's no local church. Two, three, it promotes and protects. It doesn't promote and protect the gospel by requiring people to publicly confess the gospel. Four, it privatizes Christian profession. Five, it undermines the authority of Christ's commands. Uh, six, it weakens the church's witness to the gospel. And seven, it compromises the true Christian freedom. So qu- quite a list there. Yeah, and to put it positively, I think I would say keeping baptism together with church membership upholds the authority of Christ in issuing that command. Mm-hmm. It's ensures that Christians go public with their faith, sets them on that trajectory of public witness. It ensures that new believers understand that to be a believer in Jesus is to be public about it. Um, It ensures that uh, the church is, is the steward 
uh, of Christ's commands. In other words, that it's not um, that the church doesn't have the authority to just sort of dispense with one or the other. It, it keeps the church under the authority of Jesus practically in this particular area. Um, and so positively, I think in that sense, it it strengthens the church's conformity to the will of Christ and its and its effectiveness. And and again, this is a this is this is tinkering with with plumbing and with the sort of angles of foundations to mix my household metaphors a little bit. This is this is not um, you know an all encompassing issue. Nevertheless, I think it's a bit like if you set the foundation of a building just a few degrees wrong or just a yeah. few inches over to one side in a way in a way it's a it's a relatively minor error in a way it's 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 not the worst thing that could happen but i think it does have a structural impact and, and weakens in that sense the integrity of the church so a few more objections to what you're saying just mm. brief 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 mm. replies okay. give us brief replies i'll try we're the only evangelical church in our area there's nowhere else for these pedo baptists to go yeah, really briefly, the best thing for those people is going to be being confronted with their need to be baptized, um, having, in that sense, the uh, the pressure, in a sense, of not being able to join a church to, to, to encourage them to reconsider their position. And if they persist in reconsidering their position, there's other questions you could ask. Why did you move somewhere, assuming it was a voluntary move, why did you move somewhere where there wasn't a church you could join? What, what can you do about it? Ultimately, and I, I'd be happy, if you're in an area where there's no paedo-baptist churches, I'd be happy for a credo-baptist church to assist in and foster a paedo-baptist church getting off the ground. Right. Because... Because they're going to preach the gospel, they're going to be faithful, and, and Christians can go there and practice according to their conscience. Uh, another objection. It's inconsistent, Bobby, uh, for you to exclude Pato Baptists from membership in your church, and yet you're going to invite them to preach in your church pulpit, and you're going to do evangelism with them. Yeah, That's I'll, the deal. Yeah, I would just say there's more than one kind of church fellowship. There's... You could call it formal and informal. Uh, there's, you know, inviting someone to preach is like if I had someone in my home who I was confident is a Christian, even if I they're not part of my church, we can pray together. Um, so it's, it, church fellowship isn't just all one thing. Uh, the objection that says, look, they were baptized as infants as the objective sign. Mm-hmm. This is something I've been hearing more and more mm-hmm. recently. As an objective sign, as an infant. And when we bring them into membership, we are adding the subjective reality kind of retroactively mm. to that thing that happened to them as infants. So the yeah. faith is joined later. Yeah, well, first of all, the new covenant is God guaranteeing the fulfillment of his promises in his people's lives. So the new covenant, to have a sign of the new covenant, is to have a sign that is necessarily about promises fulfilled in someone's life. So you're divorcing it from the realities of the new covenant. It's a longer conversation. I would also say that that rationale just is... Uh, a paedo-baptist's own understanding of the rites. The Westminster Confession says the efficacy of the ordinance is not tied to the time of administration. You could be baptized as an infant, only come to Christ later, and that's okay because that's how paedo-baptists understand the ordinance. So I would say, hmm, as a credo-baptist, you're actually adopting a paedo-baptist understanding of paedo-baptism and making that the rationale for how you do church membership. In one sense, you're effectively, to that degree, becoming a paedo-baptist by embracing that argument. Even if you're not going to practice it, you're saying you're endorsing that rationale. Yeah. Or as you would say, that that infant baptism is no baptism. Yeah. It's not, I, like, it's not like a broken arm, I've heard you say. Yeah. It's, it's just not an arm. Yeah. Uh, last, last question. We're, we're about out of time here. Let's just think momentarily, pastorally, in, in terms of implementation. <clears throat> you're a new pastor. Your church members and perhaps even your elders have no clue what you're talking about with all this going public mm. stuff this renewing and initiating mm. those signs stuff. So what do you do? How much grace and patience do you show as you try to shepherd the church in a healthy direction? Yeah, well, certainly I would want to see pastors leading prayerfully and patiently. I'd want to see pastors um, teaching diligently, working for like-mindedness and unity among their fellow elders, um, patiently introducing this stuff kind of bit by bit, piece by piece to their church. Um and I would want pastors to very carefully consider um, that the pace of change in their church is only going to be as quick as the pace of change in people's understanding and, and, and willingness to obey Jesus in these new ways. So that's, that's their job as shepherds, is to shepherd people along in their understanding. Um, and like Jacob with his flocks, he knew how far they could drive and he knew what would, what would push them over the edge. Um, another practical consideration is that 
Um, I mean, there's a lot you could say. I, I think I think I think I would just in, in summary say that incremental progress is better than no progress, um, and you have a, a golden opportunity with people coming into your church to help tying, tie these things together. You might not have an opportunity to make a sort of sweeping change or a kind of clean break, but think about, even if there's maybe a little bit more of gridlock, thinking in terms of uh, how do we change our policies as a church, this kind of thing, you may well have more ability to help shape how your church is going to do things going forward, even if there are people in the church uh, for whom you know, they, they may never totally uh, embrace what you're doing, you know, embrace this understanding of things. Brother, I am praising and thanking God that you have taken several months, almost a year, mm-hmm. I don't know, of yep. your life to stop and think about these matters from scriptures so carefully, uh, I, I dare to say more carefully than probably most people have, many people have, uh, and blessed and benefited me and many others through your book, through this, I think, scintillating conversation. <laughs> thank you so much for your work on this and I I do pray it's a benefit to many well thanks to you brother and thanks to Nine Marks for supporting me doing this and thanks to anyone who persevered to the end here Amen thank you friends for listening to this Nine Marks audio message we encourage you to make copies of this message to give to others but please Do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more audio messages and other free resources, we invite you to visit us online at www.ninemarks.org or call us toll-free at 1-888-543-1030. Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nation's through healthy churches.